There's something strange happening with violent crime in America. The FBI has released new data showing a major increase in murders last year in the U.S. Incidents of violent crime are reaching levels they haven't hit in decades. An increase we haven't seen since 1995. And nobody seems to know why. The causes are not well understood, and there are strong disagreements about how to address the problem. But to go even deeper, what causes violent crime to happen at all, and more importantly, what can be done to help prevent it. The policymakers, no one really understands nearly enough about what the most effective and humane ways are to address the constellation of challenges that our cities are struggling with right now. That's Jens Ludwig, an economist and urban policy expert at the University of Chicago and the Pritzker director of the Crime Lab, which partners with policymakers in major cities across the country to help reduce gun violence and reduce the harms of the criminal justice system itself. If you look at the murder rate that we have in the United States today, it's almost exactly the same as what it was in 1950. We've made almost no long-term progress. And the incarceration rate in the United States today, I think, as everyone knows, is dramatically higher. A big reason for that is because we are just so non-data-driven in addressing these policy problems. Ludwig and the Crime Lab take a unique approach. They focus squarely on the data to study quantifiable and replicable ways to reduce crime and answer some of these complex questions. I think there's much more room for optimism now that we can use the tools of social policy and partner with community groups to prevent crime and especially gun violence from having to, from occurring in the first place so we don't have to rely on this sort of exclusive after the fact criminal justice and incarceration approach the one of a kind data his team collects provides a sense of hope to what often feels like a senseless and hopeless problem and he says it's still important to remember every data point is a human being from the University of Chicago Podcast Network, this is Big Brains, a podcast about the pioneering research and the pivotal breakthroughs that are reshaping our world. On this episode, taking a data-driven approach to gun violence. I'm your host, Paul Rand. You hear it everywhere these days. We're taking a data-driven approach to X, Y, or Z. It can start to sound meaningless, but when lives are at stake, it makes all the difference. If you look at what happened over the 20th century around the world, life expectancy for human beings basically doubled between 1900 and, and 2000, which is an absolutely incredible accomplishment. And one of the reasons for that doubling of life expectancy is in medicine, we take data very, very seriously. You know, in the U.S. context, the FDA doesn't let any sort of new treatment be scaled up and delivered to lots of people before it's been subject to a randomized controlled trial. Because we recognize it's critically important to understand what's actually effective before we, we adopt this at large scale. You know, my, my youngest daughter, Willa, she's eight now, but when she was two or three, we unfortunately discovered that she had a very severe peanut allergy. And the very first thing that we did is we uh, raced over to Comer Children's Hospital to enroll her in a pedi pediatric drug trial now, I think the only way that we are going to help everybody's kids avoid the emergency department is by doing things like these randomized trials to help us better understand how to prevent these severe allergic reactions. You know, when, when you hear someone offering opinions about medical issues based on things like political ideology, I don't want to take the COVID vaccine because of whatever, when people look at medical issues and offer opinions based on their, their intuition, their gut, you know, I 
think I can cure COVID by injecting bleach or eating lots of garlic. We look at that and think it's crazy. So, some of us do. Some of us do. In contrast, when you look at how we think about dealing with problems like gun violence and the harms of the criminal justice system, in some sense, that's basically all that we do is just view things through political lenses or through our intuition. We really, I, I, we, we organized a conference through the Urban Labs recently, and, and one of the speakers there said that only something like 1% of what the public sector does actually has any evidence behind it, right? Most of what we do in addressing public policy problems, unlike in medicine, it's purely politics and intuition. That's a big problem, and I, I think you can see that in the results or in the lack of results. So Ludwig and the crime lab use randomized control trials to find ways to address violent crime. We'll get to those in a minute. But first, it's important to understand what causes violent crime in the first place. And for most of this conversation, when we're talking about violent crime, what we're talking about is gun violence. Gun violence is absolutely devastating. What we're seeing is a growing body of, uh, of data and research showing that it's not just the victims that gun violence devastates entire communities. There's a sociologist, this great sociologist at Princeton named Pat Sharkey, who's shown all of the ways in which growing up in communities where there's lots of gun violence really harms children's development. It negatively affects their mental health. It harms their schooling outcomes. You know, my our University of Chicago colleague, Steve Levitt, wrote a paper about 20 years ago showing that gun violence in particular is one of the big drivers of population loss from cities. So when you look at the city of Chicago, for instance, you know, everybody knows that the population has been declining over time. We're a population loser on net. Most of that population loss is disproportionately concentrated in the predominantly African-American neighborhoods of Chicago's south and west side. Since 1980, we've lost, the city has lost something like 400,000 black residents. By way of putting that into perspective, that's roughly equal to the entire population of the city of Minneapolis. Gun violence represents really an existential threat, not just to Chicago, but, but to every, every city in America. And that problem has been getting increasingly worse. We've all seen the statistics, according to the CDC. Homicide rates rose 30% between 2019 and 2020, the highest single-year increase in modern history. In Cook County, here in Illinois, there have been more than 1,000 homicides in 2021, the highest number since 1994. Ludwig looks at more crime data than most people in the world. So what's going on here? As a scientist, I think the preamble that I have to start with is the confession that, that nobody really knows for sure, right? And so what I'm going to offer you is my, my best hypothesis for what's going on, but recognizing that it'll take us a, a while to understand what we are going through right now. But with that said, I think there are two key explanations for the rise in gun violence that we've seen the last couple of years uh, all across the country. And I think it is the mental health fallout of the pandemic and a rise in uh, gun carrying in public places. So last summer, the Centers for Disease Control did a, a population survey of American adults to try and better understand what the effects of the pandemic were on, on people's mental health. Something like 40% of American adults said they were struggling with mental health or substance abuse. 40%. 40%. Now, wow. if you look at the gun violence problem, right, gun violence is concentrated among relatively young people. Say 18 to 24 is unfortunately one of the peak ages of gun violence involvement. If you look at the CDC mental health survey, something like 75% of 18 to 24 year olds were struggling with mental health or substance abuse during the pandemic. 
And fully one in four 18 to 24 year olds in America had considered suicide over the last 30 days. My gosh. Right. It, it is it is a, a public health crisis of a sort that we just haven't seen before and certainly in my lifetime. And it's it's a public health crisis that is very disproportionately concentrated in our most under-resourced, economically disadvantaged, and predominantly, unfortunately, black and brown neighborhoods in cities like Chicago and cities all around the United States. The second, um, the second thing that has happened is a change in the functioning of the criminal justice system, but I think not for the reason that a lot of people think. As the pandemic started in March 2020, the criminal justice system for understandable public health concerns decided to really limit in-person interactions to the degree to which they could, right? And you can see in the data, one of the things that law enforcement did all across the country was greatly reduce the rate at which they interact with the public unless it was absolutely critically necessary. And, and you can understand why. Unfortunately, what we saw around the same time was even though the rate at which the police were stopping people declined so much, the total number of guns, of illegal guns that the police were taking off the streets actually increased. Now, I don't think the police got lots better at intuiting who in public would be carrying guns. And so I think the, the most lo logical explanation for that is that the prevalence of gun carrying really increased a lot. And, you know, we, we did some analysis on that point for the Chicago Tribune. This guy, Jeff Asher, did a uh, version of that analysis for other cities, for I think Vox, and found something very similar going on in other cities around the country. And so I think you can sort of see this combination of a below the surface kind of public health crisis interacted with this rise in gun carrying is really unfortunately a, a recipe for a rise in gun violence in, in our cities. But there's a bigger question here that goes beyond the recent trend. Why do people decide to commit gun violence at all? One of the things in your question that itself is really interesting, you know, the way you phrase the question, why are people deciding to commit crime? I, I assume it's conscious. Maybe it's yeah, not. Yeah, and, and I think the deciding itself is an interesting sort of formulation and frame on the problem, right? And, and so I think maybe one place that's, that's useful to start is to just be clear about what gun violence in America is exactly. If you watch, say, The Wire you have an image of what gun violence in America is, right? It is the result of robberies. It is the result of, you know, gang wars over drug selling turf, right? So you have a, a mental image from watching, you know, media sources like The Wire of gun violence as motivated by money and being premeditated and, and deliberate, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, this is hard to figure out from news accounts if you really dig into the data, what you can see is that the vast majority of gun violence and shootings in the United States are very different from that. They're actually arguments. They start with heated words and they escalate. Of people that know each other. They, I mean, they know each other. They don't know each other, right? Mm. Someone steps on your shoe walking off the CTA. Got it. And, you know, I mean, this is somebody says something about your girlfriend or your wife or whatever, right? could get, get de-escalated, but it, sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't. And then it ends in tragedy because someone has a gun. So if you looked at the data from the city of Chicago, for instance, something like three quarters of the murders in Chicago 
stem from altercations, from arguments. That's just absolutely fascinating. Okay. It is fascinating. If you, if you sort of think about, you know, what has the policy conversation been like in the United States for the last 50 years? The, the left and the right, in some sense, agree at a very high level that the problem is one of incentives. Now, the, the left and the right disagree about whether that should come in the form of more sticks or in the form of more carrots. But implicit in the discussion is the idea that the solution to the crime problem is about incentivizing people to choose to not commit crimes. It misses two key ideas. It misses the fact that gun violence really is the driver of the harms of crime in the United States, as I mentioned before. And it also misses the fact that the overwhelming majority of shootings in the United States stem from altercations, right? And once you sort of see that, you start to realize the problem that you're trying to solve is very different from what you had imagined. Mm -hmm. And you start to see that there are situational factors then that become much more important than you had originally um, appreciated. You know, just think about the last argument that, that you were in. If you really reflect on, on that, you appreciate what an incredibly complicated social interaction an argument is, right? You know, I have my thoughts about the other person yes. and they have their thoughts about me. But I also have my thoughts about what they think of me, and they also have their thoughts about what I think of them. You can see it's, it's very, very complicated, and how we navigate that argument, that altercation, really requires an enormous amount of like sophisticated cognition thinking. But one of the things that we've learned from uh, the last several decades of behavioral science is conscious, deliberate thinking really is enormously effortful. And so all of us develop automatic or what psychologists call system one responses to situations that we see over and over again. They rely on rules of thumb, what psychologists call heuristics, and, and they are often emotional reactions rather than sort of deliberately thought through reactions. The reason that that's important is an, an argument is a situation where we desperately need to be thinking clearly, but you know, one of the things that psychologists have, have shown us, my friend Sendhil Mulanathan and um, Eldar Shafir wrote a book a few years ago called Scarcity that shows that stress depletes mental bandwidth and causes all of us to rely more on our sort of system one automatic sort of emotional heuristic rule of thumb responses. And worse still, we know that in economically disadvantaged under-resourced neighborhoods, stress and trauma are much more prevalent than in more affluent neighborhoods. And so, you know, for both of those reasons, the chances of these arguments inadvertently going from zero to 100 in no seconds flat can be higher in under-resourced, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. And then you combine that with the fact that illegal guns are more prevalent in some neighborhoods as well, so that the stakes of the argument going sideways and not getting de-escalated can be much higher. One more thing, which is the frame that we have put on the crime problem, on the gun violence problem, especially here in the United States and especially over the last 50 years, really has been that crime is due to bad people. And I think what we are starting to learn much more from, from the data and the behavioral science research is that situations play a much more important role in understanding crime and, and especially gun violence than I think we, we had appreciated. And so one of the very first studies 
that I was part of myself was uh, a federal government demonstration project called Moving to Opportunity. It started in 1994. It moved families out of very economically disadvantaged, distressed neighborhoods. This is like the old Robert Taylor homes at you know, State Street and Garfield Boulevard here on the south side. Uh, helped families move from neighborhoods like that to more affluent neighborhoods like Hyde Park. And it was structured just like a randomized control trial that provides gold standard evidence in medicine. And so we, some families moved, some families didn't move. And so we could tease out the effects of the neighborhood from something about the people themselves. And you could see that for the teenagers who moved from the distressed neighborhoods to the less distressed neighborhoods, the rate at which they were involved in violent crime declined by something like 50%. I think it really- Just by location. Just just by change, like your character does not magically change when you move a couple miles from 55th and Garfield Boulevard over to here, here to Hyde Park, right? It really helps you see the massive and underappreciated importance, I think, of the situation. Mm-hmm. If you understand the crime and violence problem as being due to bad people, you can see how that very quickly gets you to a, a mental place where you think the only thing that you can do is lock somebody up for life, right? If you don't think someone, you know, you would only lock someone up for life if you thought they were incapable of changing. And also, if you think that crime is due to intrinsically bad people, of course you will underinvest in prevention. Once you recognize that the situations play a much more important role, it's fallible people in difficult situations, I think it radically changes your view of the potential for prevention for starters and the types of policy strategies that you would use to effectively prevent violence. Using randomized control trials and massive data sets, the Crime Lab has been able to find demonstrable policy strategies and programs for preventing gun violence. And the numbers really are just jaw-dropping. These policies after the break. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a black hole, or why time only moves in one direction, or what is really so weird about quantum mechanics? Well, you should listen to Why This Universe. On this podcast, you'll hear about the strangest and most interesting ideas in physics, broken down by physicists Dan Hooper and Shalma Wegsman. If you want to learn about our universe, from the quantum to the cosmic, you won't want to miss Why This Universe, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Let, let's transition, if we can, into what do you do about it? And I know you've got specific thoughts. And, and, and tell me if this is fair or not, but if we're looking at two sides of this coin. One is community and not-for-profit programs that address some of these intrinsic challenges that you're talking about, and the other is law enforcement. Is that the right way to think about this, or is it a more nuanced answer of of how we should look at prevention? If, If you look at cities that have become safe around the world, every city essentially relies on those two sort of big picture policy levers, which is some combination of social policy and the criminal justice system, including law enforcement, to different degrees. And I think most observers would look at the United States over the last 50 years and agree that our policy approaches the last 50 years have leaned too exclusively on the criminal justice system to the exclusion of, of social policy. So let me start with what additional things you could do on the um on the social policy side. All of the social programs that the crime lab has participated in revolve around the same general idea, 
helping at-risk people develop strategies to prevent a bad situation from turning into a life-altering one. A few years ago, I was visiting the, the juvenile temporary detention center on uh, the west side of Chicago on Roosevelt Road. This is where the system holds teenage offenders who the system has deemed to be sort of the highest violence risk, right? And I was talking to one of the staff members there who said, he always tells, he said, you know, some small set of the kids are, have like deep-seated trauma. They would go on to commit violent crime if you release them. But he said, the other 80%, I always tell them, if I could give you back just 10 minutes of your lives, none of you would be here. That has led to two different types of social policy approaches that I think we've started to see, have some success in cities around the country. And one is programs like Youth Guidance's Becoming a Man that help people anticipate those difficult 10-minute windows and navigate them when they're, when they're in them. Becoming a Man is a program started by Youth Guidance, a nonprofit in Chicago, which holds weekly sessions for at-risk young men to discuss ways to cope with challenges in their lives. My mom passed in the year of 2000. She was murdered. My dad has been in and out of jail all my life. And through a randomized control trial, the crime lab has been able to scientifically prove how effective programs like this can be. I am a BAM graduate. I'm now a BAM counselor and I work in a CPS school, uh, counseling and mentoring youth. Participants had 50% fewer arrests for violent crimes. The result is kids who participate in the programs, their high school graduation rates go up by 20%. The rate at which kids are involved in the criminal justice system declines, and the violence in their communities declines as well. And that's just one program. There's also Ready, an initiative that connects people at risk of gun violence with employment, counseling, and support services. Thankful to Ready and the program, we get we get a chance to, 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 to have these these eight hours off the street and we're learning these these job Learn techniques. Uh, we're getting this job training. We're going through these job transitions. We're getting this cognitive behavioral therapy, which is extremely important. Uh, I think CBT is probably the, the most important thing that we get out of this whole Ready initiative. A preliminary crime lab study showed that participants in that program have 79% fewer arrests for shootings and homicides. There's much more room for optimism now that we can use the tools of social policy and partner with community groups to prevent crime and especially gun violence from having to, uh, from occurring in the first place so we don't have to rely on this sort of exclusive after the fact criminal justice and incarceration approach I know we're having a pretty simplified conversation but there's clarity in a lot of what you're saying and um, and and at least something very tangible for folks to get their arms around what's getting in the way? of allowing us to be effective in places from from implementing some of the things that you're articulating? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a great question. So, I, you know, I think that one of the challenges that is, is getting in the way of sort of more effective policy responses is, you know, in, in some ways, sort of the, the structure and financing of gover government in the United States. Like everything else, it comes down to money. And many of these programs are wrapped up with the education system. And if you want to look at a broken funding structure, look no further than our schools. So I saw a national foundation recently say that, you know, when you look at big city school systems like Chicago's, it's underfunded by about a third. 
right? And we've done some calculations. If you could just get the state of Illinois to be at like the national average in terms of state support for cities, the murder rate in Chicago would decline by something like 20 or 30%, just by funding the Chicago public schools at, you know, an adequate uh, level. What dollar amount would that be? You know, that's something like $6,000 per kid, right? So it would be another, you know, one or $2 billion on top of the school systems, six or $7 billion current budget. Okay. And by the way, where, where should Jeff Bezos send the check? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sure City Hall in Chicago and City Hall in <laughs> Gary, Indiana, and like every city we'll hall there. across the country would be very, very happy to, to get the help. So I think the school system is in many ways the most important social policy lever that that society has to, to prevent gun violence in the first place, right? The Crime Lab has looked at other school-based programs. One is Choose to Change. Without a shadow of a doubt, if it wasn't for this program, it probably me switching schools and doing what I did, I probably wouldn't be here right now. A behavioral science-informed mentoring program. When there was times where I told them, I'm ready to give up, I'm ready to just turn around and go back to what I'm used to. They genuinely touch my shoulder or hug me and just be like, no, we're not doing it. Like, we brought you here for a reason. Like, we're trying to, you know, officially 360 turn you around. It found that participants were 48% less likely to be arrested for violent crimes. When you think about all the other things that cities are trying to do to prevent violence, for all those other things, you know, social programs like Becoming a Man and street outreach and violence interruption and so on and so on, we really have not yet reached the point where states and the federal government have recognized that cities financially can't do it on their own. They're like islands surrounded by you know, an ocean of affluent suburbs, and we haven't quite done enough to figure out, and, and the suburbs greatly benefit from being near these big cities, but we haven't adequately figured out a way to um, change our policies to have enough resource sharing from the affluent suburbs into the cities, where the cities have adequate funding to, you know, do all of the things that I think the, the data and the science are telling us would be really helpful in preventing gun violence in the first place. But it's not only young people who are at risk. What about programs like Ready, which don't focus on kids? There's another challenge here, which is that there is a huge and deliberate hole in the U.S. social safety net. If you look at where social policy spending goes in the United States, it essentially goes to families with kids and elderly people. And from the beginning of the U.S. social safety net, as we know it in the 30s and then again in the 60s, the assumption has always been that working age men would be working. And maybe that assumption made sense for certain time periods and, and certain places. But a few years ago, I, I remember seeing a statistic that the Sun-Times um, published that, you know, if you look at Black 18 to 24-year-old men in Chicago, I think their statistic was something like 45% are not enrolled in school and not working. And so, like, there is nothing in the social safety net to solve that problem right now. And that is a, a deep structural problem that makes it hard to support all of these social policy responses that would not just help address the gun violence problem, because that's the population that's bearing the biggest burden from gun violence, but also make people's lives better in, in all sorts of other ways as well. There's another side of the coin when it comes to crime prevention, a much more contentious side. 
law enforcement. And if you follow these debates, there's something you've probably heard before, that if you increase law enforcement, crime will go down. So is that true? One part of it is just like looking at the data, right? And like honestly looking at the data. And, and here's, I think, what, what the best available data tell us, which is like when you put additional resources into police, serious violent crime, so crime goes down, especially serious violent crime, and especially in communities of color, and arrests for serious violent crimes go down at the same time. So whatever policing is doing is like some sort of like preventive deterrent, whatever it is, rather than just simply like locking tons of people up for everything. Now, there are two caveats to that. One caveat to that is we do see arrests for low-level minor crimes can go up disproportionately in communities of color as well. And so I think the challenge for the field there is trying to figure out how you get the public safety benefits from you know, policing in American cities without the collateral harms from low-level crime enforcement. And that really is the million-dollar question. To try and tackle it, the Crime Lab has partnered with the Council on Criminal Justice to launch an independent task force on policing to use their data-driven approach to identify policies and practices that are likely to improve the fairness and the effectiveness of law enforcement. Over the course of last year, the task force developed 16 recommendations to reduce the collateral harms of law enforcement. Things like revising qualified immunity, prohibiting neck restraints, and no-knock warrants. But of all of the recommendations, one rose to the top. One of the things that has been among the biggest surprises to me is I've started to try and better understand law enforcement in the United States and how you make it more effective and humane. One of the biggest surprises to me is how much variation there is across the police, police departments and within police departments over time in how they do what they're supposed to do. The number one recommendation is to develop national training standards with an emphasis on de-escalation. There's far too much variation in how departments handle training, which leads to some departments focusing on more militaristic models of policing. I think it, it speaks to why the U.S. Department of Justice is you know, involved in doing things like consent decrees with departments, right? Rather than stepping in after the fact, the task force recommends that the federal government enforce the same training standards across the entire country and use that unified training to specifically focus on de-escalation techniques. You know, I think maybe some people have this idea that just police departments are just incapable of changing. You know, I think if you think that police departments are intrinsically as they are and can't change, then you might think that just like defund or abolish is the only thing that you can do. And, you know, I think there are very much open questions about which departments, which specific departments can change and how much and, and how you get them to change. But I think as a categorical statement, like there are lots and lots of examples around the country of police departments that have changed a fair amount. And of course he believes that a data-driven approach by departments is going to be key. I think it's fair to say that there is no police department in the country that has fully figured this out yet. But I think many experts would look at LAPD and NYPD and see that they shifted to data-driven management much earlier and much more rapidly 
than I think many other police departments around the country have done. You can see the result. It's like in, in, in New York City, again, there are lots of challenges that we still have in New York City, but what we've seen in New York is crime go down and incarceration go down at the same time. And in LA, what we've seen is murders go down while public support of the police has gone up. Most people living in most American cities would be very happy to have to live in a world in which serious violent crime was going down, incarceration was going down, and public perceptions and support for the criminal justice system were were improving. You know, I think the national policy conversation would make you think that those different goals are intrinsically in opposition. And I think what we can see from some case studies around the country that it is possible to make the criminal justice system sort of more fair and more effective at the same time. As we said, these two approaches, social programs and law enforcement, are two sides of the same coin. And Ludwig says they really are connected in important ways. There are reasons to believe this the social policy approach and at least a functioning criminal justice system are complementary, not substitute approaches. And a complementary sort of approach is like what you might call street outreach or violence interrupter approaches, where when you can start to see an argument escalating, you have a street outreach worker or a violence interrupter around who can step in and help defuse that and de-escalate that. Why might criminal justice system, or at least a functioning criminal justice system, be a complement to that? You know, one of the things when you talk to people who do violence interruption work, one of the things that they tell you is like when they're trying to talk someone down, what what I hear, you know, that the argument that the violence interrupter or the street outreach worker is making is, you know, often not based on an appeal to altruism, but rather an appeal to self-interest. You know, you don't want to spend the next 20 years of your life sitting in jail or prison because of that guy over this. It's not worth it, right? Now, in a system where something like 5% of non-fatal shootings result in an arrest, as unfortunately is the case here in Chicago right now, that makes that kind of self-interested appeal more difficult. You know, we obviously need to greatly improve the fairness of the criminal justice system, reduce all of the racial biases that we can see, make the system more effective and, and humane, but you do need some sort of well-functioning criminal justice system for things like, and this is, I mean, I'm just saying back to you what street outreach workers and violence interrupter organizations say to us, right? Their view is like, if there's, if, if, the, if the penalty is non-existent, it makes street outreach and violence interruption hard, right? So that doesn't mean that we need to be throwing people in, in prison for life over whatever, but we need some sort of functioning criminal justice system, ideally a better one than we have today. There has been a critique of the crime lab, that it shouldn't be focused on the individual behaviors and psychology of offenders, and that they should be spending all of their effort on looking at systems like the police and the criminal justice system, which as the argument goes, are the true root cause of these problems. I ask Yins what he thinks of that criticism. I think I, I reject the, the premise of the question or the criticism, if that makes sense. You know, I, I reject the idea that you can either address structural root causes or you can implement social programs that reach individual kids and, and, and young people in, in the neighborhoods where, where they're living. 
I, I don't actually see why anyone would view this as, as an either or rather than a both and. And so let me just sort of, because I think one of the reasons that I think it's a both and is because I can see our research centers, the crime lab and the education lab together, we're doing, but like if we can do both, I don't see why society itself can't do both as well, right? So if you look at like on the structural root cause side, we've been doing a bunch of, of systems level work, like working with the Chicago public schools there's a subset of kids attending what some cities call them alternative high schools or second chance high schools. CPS, the Chicago Public Schools, calls them option schools. And the graduation rates for kids going to the option schools in Chicago in recent years have been on the order of like 30 or 40 percent, depending on how you define it exactly. And nobody would want their kids to have a three in 10 or a four in 10 chance of graduating from high school, right? Part of what we've been doing as part of that is we've set up structures where we can hear for, from the students who are going to option schools and their families about what additional supports they think would be the most important things. And in response to that, one of the things that we heard is a concern that a key reason that lots of older kids who've dropped out and then have trouble coming back com to complete their schooling, one of the reasons for that is the, the difficulty juggling school and the need to make money on their own. And in response to, to that, hearing that as part of this work, we're now working with CPS to figure out how to solve that. To just give you a couple other examples, it's like we're working with the Illinois Attorney General's office as part to implement some aspects of their consent decree with the Chicago Police Department. We've worked with the city to build a gun violence dashboard that's helping street outreach and violence interrupter organizations all over the city do what they're doing to try and help their communities uh, better. And you know, I've been working myself for 30 years to understand how policy can help desegregate neighborhoods and schools, right? We've been, we've been doing a lot on the structural side, but at the same time, right? At the same time, we can also see that when we, you know, work with local schools to implement programs like Youth Guidance is Becoming a Man, the result is kids who participate in the programs, their high school graduation rates go up, right? I don't, I don't see myself like why anyone would be against that, you know, and in fact, like when I go out and I talk to principals and teachers and families on the south and west sides of Chicago, I myself have never heard anyone out in the communities say that they want less access to things like becoming a man or choose to change or, or ready, right? And so I think when, when I look at this, I, I don't see why we would get into this mindset that there's like this false either or dichotomy between addressing structural root causes and, and implementing these social programs as well. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on Big Brains, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating. The show is hosted by Paul M. Rand and produced by me, Matt Hodap, with assistance from Alyssa Eads. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.